0: Trying to. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace to us this day and for your kindness and watching over us, providing for us, allowing us to uh, live another day in your world. We're thankful for the great salvation you provided through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have, that we live in an age where the Bible is, had been has been translated and brought into our language and we can readily study it. We pray that uh, we'll take serious that responsibility and we will seek to be obedient to what we read and learn and understand. Uh, We do pray that uh, you'll bless our time this evening. We pray for all of our friends and pray for uh, Nadine Pruitt that we just heard about with her breaking her wrist. We pray that uh, the doctors will be able to Navigate that and get her on the road to recovery. Thank you now for this time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are looking at uh, starting the actual analysis here, the actual discussion of the text tonight. Uh, Last time, well, oh yeah, the first thing we have to do is we have to have a quiz. So let's take a look okay, at this. I know they're muted, but I'm gonna, I don't want you to speak. I'm going to let you think about it. And so the first question, and then I'll let you think about it for a moment. Corinth became a Roman colony in 46 B.C. Corinth became a Roman colony. It's kind of a technical little detail, but that's what teachers do. They put in these trick questions. Corinth became a Roman colony in 46 B.C. Well, that's true. We said that uh, I said that uh, Greece was invaded by the Romans in the second century BC. A series of three wars that they fought, and the last one of those uh, in 146 BC, a hundred years before this, uh, Corinth was kind of utterly destroyed because they resisted the Romans, and so a hundred years later, the city is rebuilt by Rome as a Roman colony. Remember Roman colonies were cities in the Roman empire outside of Rome that uh, had the privileges of Roman citizenship. They were considered very loyal to Rome. They were often settled by veterans uh, from the Roman army. So there was a lot of loyalty to Rome there. And uh, so Corinth became on the rise and eventually became the capital of the province of Achaia. The Olympic games were held every four years in Corinth. Think about that. The Olympic games were held every four years in Corinth. Well, that is of course false. The Olympic games were held in Olympia, which is west of Corinth on the same Peloponnesus Peninsula, but some miles west. But Corinth did have games. Other cities had games. Uh, Corinth uh, had the Isthmian Gaines, which was that suburb there in the Isthmus every two years. Three, the church at Corinth was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. Well, obviously it was founded by the apostle Paul, but you know which missionary journey was it? He had three, one, two, and three. We'll kind of cover that in a second here. It's true, it was on his second missionary journey that begins in Acts 15. For the chief deity of Corinth was Zeus. Most cities in the ancient world generally had a chief god or goddess, that kind of the protector of the city. Athens had Athena. Um, so no, Corinth, the deity was, uh, was Aphrodite. Uh, um, I'm not, not, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I gave you the, uh, did I give you, yeah, I did say Aphrodite. I guess I was thinking I talked about in the Roman, uh, Roman Venus, but, uh, we were talking about the Greek term here. So the Greek Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, sometimes a very sensual kind of thing. The Romans uh, uh, used the, had a different name, of course, but still the same goddess. And Paul founded the church at Corinth around AD 50. Kind of a technical question again there. Remember Christ? Some debate about exactly when Christ was crucified. I tend to follow the date about AD 30. Some say 32. We don't know for sure. But uh, this is right, about AD 50. And we know this date, remember I said, because in Acts 18, it mentions Paul being brought before the proconsul Gallio. And we know he came to Corinth in July of AD 51. So we think Paul came in 50, left in 52. He was there for 18 months, a year and a half. Six, 1 Corinthians 5.9 makes reference to a letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth prior to 1 Corinthians. And we said, yes, that seems to be true. Paul had a series of correspondences, four that we think we can pinpoint, two that are in the canon, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but we think there are others that we can figure out from what's said in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So we said uh, 2nd Corinthians was written from Macedonia. That would be, you know, Philippi probably, but Thessalonica is in Macedonia, Berea is in Thessalonica, I mean Macedonia. This is the province of Achaia. So 2 Corinthians was written on his third missionary journey. We'll just review that in a second. So remember, uh, here's Corinth. Uh, and um, it's um, here on this peninsula, this l- almost an island, except for this narrow isthmus here right here, with suburbs like Sincrea, Isthmia, Lechium around. Here's Ephesus. This is Asia over here. Here's the province of Achaia, province of Macedonia here. And uh, remember on Paul's second missionary journey, his first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, his second, he travels up through Syria and Cilicia here, goes through the mountains here, through the uh, straits here, uh, so in straits through these mountains, and uh, comes back to Galatia. This is where he had his. This is where he established churches on his first missionary journey. Acts thirteen and fourteen. So he uh, he traveled throughout this region. Acts sixteen we're told, and he decides. Remember to go to Ephesus, but he's forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. He decides to go to Bithynia up here, this province, Roman province, he's forbidden. So he decides to go over to Troas here, which is in the province of Asia, it's not Ephesus, and sort of wait upon God and God in a vision. Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. He travels over by boat to Thamothrace, then to the port of Neapolis and on to Philippi in that famous chapter, Acts chapter 16. Establishes a church there, but gets run out of Philippi. Goes to Thessalonica, establishes a church, gets run out of Thessalonica. Goes to Berea, and finally on to Athens, where he has a a long chapter there, where he is brought before the council, sort of the religious council, the Areopagus, and uh, not much. You know, there was no nothing is said in Acts about a church being established. Uh, but some people were converted. But then he goes on to Corinth, Acts 18. And there he meets Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were apparently already Christians who had come from Rome. They had been kicked out of Rome. In AD 49, the emperor Claudius made all the Jews leave Rome. And so they were in the business of a similar business that Paul was in, similar trade, Leatherwork, work, tent making, and they, they met Paul in Corinth, and he stayed with them. And Paul establishes a church there, and then he leaves, and they go with him. Paul spends 18 months in Corinth, a year and a half, and they all leave together, and they go to Ephesus, where Paul had intended to go, but he doesn't stay long. He wants to get back to Jerusalem, and uh, so he leaves them there, and he travels back, ultimately, to Caesarea, the port for Judea, down to Jerusalem, and then back to the church at Antioch, and that brings an end to the second missionary journey. Then Paul begins a third missionary journey, the same route that he took for the second missionary journey, and then travels over to Ephesus where he spends three years, three years in uh, the province of of Asia in the city of Ephesus. And there's quite a ministry there described in the book of Acts. Now, when Paul is in Ephesus, he writes letters back to the church at Corinth. He apparently writes a letter before 1 Corinthians we talked about. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5.9. Paul talks about in my letter, in my previous letter... I wrote to you. He wrote about a problem of sexual immorality in the church. Um, And he writes that probably about AD 54. And then he writes the canonical book we have, 1 Corinthians, from Ephesus in AD 55. Now, Paul makes another visit to Corinth that is not in the book of Acts. It seems to be required by what we read in 2 Corinthians. That while Paul is in, in Ephesus during that three year period, he makes a, a visit, a brief visit apparently over to Ephesus. Now I've drawn it as a, as a line that just goes by sea. I don't know how Paul got there. In a moment, we're gonna see when Paul wants to go back to Corinth, he goes by land. He goes up around through Troas and down this way. So I don't know how he got over there, but he did go to uh apparently and this is usually called the painful visit because he talks about i made a painful visit i'm not going to make another painful visit now he's writing this in second corinthians uh, we haven't we haven't got there yet we're talking about uh first corinthians and now he's at he's at ephesus and he uh he goes over here now we're reading about this i'm describing this from second corinthians which hasn't been written yet so He's telling us about what happened in the past here. And he goes over to Ephesus. And from what we can gather in the book, he has a confrontation with a man or a group of people who really uh, come down hard on the apostle Paul, uh, question his apostleship and all everything, question his motives, his character, very, very harsh. And Paul is upset, as we'll see in 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians didn't really sort of come to his rescue. They didn't really defend him. I mean, they they owe their existence to the Apostle Paul. They wouldn't know the gospel, they wouldn't know anything if he hadn't come to Corinth. And so he he leaves back and goes back to Ephesus. And when he comes back, he writes apparently another letter. 2 Corinthians mentions this letter. 1 Corinthians mentions this previous letter, but 2 Corinthians mentions a, a letter we commonly call the severe letter. Now I can't prove this, absolutely but that's what we think, that's what many think, that there was this second letter where Paul is writing about his visit and what happened there and so forth from Ephesus. And he sends that severe letter by Titus. Uh, Titus is one of his, you know, companions and a very faithful man, Uh, the epistle, you know, to Titus, written to Titus, and so he sends that by Titus, and uh, Paul is anxious to know how they're going to respond to this. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he just couldn't wait. He was just really troubled about how they might receive, and he's waiting for Titus to come back. Now, apparently, Titus is coming back this way, and um, it'd be, it's interesting to know how he could hope to meet up with Titus, how, why he wouldn't miss Titus, but Apparently, he had a way of communicate. They had a way of making sure they're not missing each other. So Paul says he was, you know, troubled. We'll see this in Second Corinthians two. He goes to Troas, and he doesn't. He doesn't find Titus there. He's waiting for Titus. What did? How did they respond to the severe letter? Paul's wondering. And so Paul sets out for Macedonia. Doesn't say where he went in Macedonia. We could might imagine Philippi, maybe. And from what we learn in 2nd Corinthians, eventually Titus joins him. In 2nd Corinthians seven, we learn that Titus meets him in Philippi. And from Philippi, Paul then writes, or from Macedonia, Paul writes 2nd Corinthians. So he meets Titus there. He gets pretty good news about the severe letter. They have generally been favorable toward it. They've repented of the fact that they didn't defend him and so forth. This guy, we're going to read about this guy who challenged Paul and so forth. And uh, the Paul says, okay, you know, if he repents, then you should forgive him and so forth. And so uh, he writes 2 Corinthians, from Macedonia, that's the letter we're studying, in AD 56. And eventually he will go on to to, uh, Corinth, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse three. And there he writes the book of Romans. So let's look now at the beginning of the letter, at the greeting and thanksgiving. These are common elements, you know, in Paul's epistles as he begins. He says uh, in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, the province of Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I say here, as this letter will reveal, uh, Paul's authority to command the Corinthians was being questioned by some in the church. So it is important here to note that Paul stresses that he, as an apostle, doesn't always, you know, when he starts his letter, he doesn't always start with, I'm an apostle. Sometimes he says, he's a servant. But he stresses here his apostleship to the corinthians by the will of god apostle of jesus christ, christ jesus by the will of god so paul uh is very it's very it's essential for him both in first corinthians and in second corinthians to assert his apostolic authority uh, he has the right to command their obedience uh, he's a representative for christ he claims equal authority with uh, the apostles. Remember over in Galatians, the earlier epistle, he said, for God who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say that after Christ arose from the dead, you know, he appeared to him as sort of a confirmation of his apostleship. Now remember apostles were especially gifted and divinely commissioned men who had the authority to speak for Christ. This is a unique thing. They could speak for Christ. Nobody has that authority. When we say, you know, pastors are speaking or our authority, all authority after the apostles comes from scripture. That is, we get up and preach in church, pastors get up and preach, others teach. But that authority is, there is authority to the pastoral office, there's no question about that. There is authority there, clearly in Scripture. But our our really ultimate authority is the Scripture itself. What does Scripture say? Uh, We can't say God says unless Scripture says. (laughs) And the idea behind uh, an apostle is a representative a divinely commissioned representative. The word apostolos, the word apostle, apostolos, was not used that often in um, secular Greek, but it's used, you know, about 80 times in the New Testament. And the probably the background <clears throat> for this word really comes from a Hebrew concept, the concept of shaliach, shaliach. So a, a lot of Christian texts translate the rabbinic concept of shaliach as apostolos. And so uh, this idea of apostolos, a representative, a divinely chosen representative in the case of Christ, apostles, uh, comes from this, probably this Jewish concept of shaliach. So in Judaism, a shaliach was a commissioned agent who could speak for another, act for another. So it's kind of like a lot more than power of attorney. We have, you know, power of attorney, so a person can act legally for that other person. Well, this is this is similar, but it's much more. Uh, so uh, this person, this shaliach, could arrange a marriage, contract a marriage or manage a divorce proceeding. So the person didn't even have to show up, the Sheliac could represent them. The Sheliac could slaughter the Paschal lamb in the name of the person, the principal. And so they had a famous legal maxim, the one whom a man sends, that's the Sheliac, is like the man himself. So Paul is not writing here as a private individual or even as a gifted teacher, but as a called apostle whose words have the authority of Christ himself. And so the Philippians need, I mean, the Corinthians need to listen to that very clearly what he has to say. Paul goes on here to refer to Timothy as our brother. And, you know, in his letters, Paul often mentions a person who's with him at that time with whom his readers are acquainted. They were acquainted with Timothy because Timothy was with Paul at Corinth and so forth. Now, linked with the Corinthians, I say, are all God's people, holy people in the province of Achaia. Remember, the province of Achaia is this whole province here. So that includes, you know, people in Athens, people in Sancrea, Ismia, Isthmia, Lechium, all around. So uh, the gospel, Paul was there, you know, for a year and a half. So, you know, people were probably saved throughout the province of Achaia and so forth. Uh, so we should probably think of 2 Corinthians as somewhat of a circular letter, a letter that's meant for the city of Corinth, but also uh, to other people in the province, uh, kind of like we think of maybe the letter of Ephesians a little bit like that. Uh, now, it's interesting to note how Paul addresses the church. He doesn't say he's writing to the church of Corinth. Uh, he doesn't say to the church of Corinth. If you look at Paul's earlier epistles, like 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, he says to the church of the Thessalonians in God. <laughs> but Paul is particularly careful here uh, to talk about in 1 Corinthians and also here to the church of God in Corinth. And so... Um, Paul is is very careful here to um, to emphasize the fact that it's God's church. The Corinthians were uh, big on arguing that you know this thing is all about them. They were very high on themselves. This is their church, and Paul wants to remind them that um, this is God's church. Um, the church belongs to God, not to them. He makes that point very clear in First Corinthians, like First Corinthians chapter three. Uh, the church is God's building, uh, he says. The church is God's farm. He compares it to an agricultural thing, to a building, and he says Paul, uh, Paul and he mentions Apollos there. We're just servants. And so uh, don't get too high on yourself and and the church. The church is God's church, he's in control and I'm his divinely appointed representative here. Uh, Verse two finally is characteristic here as I say of the Pauline greetings we're familiar with if we've read Paul's epistles which combines the traditional Greek and Hebrew greeting. Uh, The normal word that people used in letters in Paul's day was the word greetings. They would just say greetings to whoever. Uh, we see that in a few letters that are mentioned in the New Testament, and James does in James 1.1. Paul changes that word greeting to grace. It's, it's really the same word, just a different kind of form of it, uh, because he wants to emphasize grace. You know, We think of grace when we think of Paul. God's unsought we should emphasize that it's not just unmerited favor but unsought favor god sought us and so we didn't seek that uh, god sought us and put his grace upon us and so paul makes reference to that at the beginning at the end you know of, all, of every epistle and then he mentions peace grace and peace which is the hebrew equivalent shalom the equivalent of the grace of the greek term and so it's often noted that, you know, peace comes as a result of grace. We have the peace with God and the peace of God because we uh, have grace from God. All right, let's look at the uh, Thanksgiving um, in verses three through 11. And, uh, First of all, we'll look at verses three through through seven, the thanksgiving for God's comfort in suffering. Paul says in verse three, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Now, this word troubles, I should mention right here at the beginning, is a word that uh, has a kind of a broad range of meanings. Troubles is good. Sometimes it's translated afflictions. It can refer to uh, outward troubles, outward difficulties. Uh, you break your wrist, that's troubles, that's afflictions. It can refer to uh, physical You know, thorn in the flesh, Paul has, that's afflictions, that's troubles. It can refer to persecution, inward things, outward things, just a whole range of difficulties that come to us because we live in a fallen world. And Paul says God comforts us in all these troubles so that we can comfort those. Here's the reason why he does this, or at least one reason why he does it so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I say here in Paul's letters, he usually follows his greeting with a thanksgiving for God's grace that is evident in the lives of his converts, like 1 Corinthians, and a summary of his prayer requests for them, like Philippians or Colossians. But notice here, Paul offers praise to God for consoling and encouraging him. Now, remember, I told you what's been going on in Paul's life. He's had this painful visit, wrote this severe letter. He sent Titus over there. He's, we're going to read what he's like. We're going to read what he's thinking. He's going to tell us what he's thinking. He's very upset. And uh, he's, he, uh, he's, meet, he's met Titus. And Titus has brought good news. And that's why he's saying here. Now he's going to talk about Titus coming in chapter seven, but that's why he's saying, I think here, you know, that or he's reflecting on the fact that uh, God has consoled him and encouraged him. Later on in verse eleven, Paul will ask that uh, they pray for him, and this preoccupation with his own circumstance is somewhat unusual for Paul. We don't read this anywhere else generally in Paul's epistles. And again, I think it's probably to be explained by some of the difficult circumstances Paul has been undergoing. Not only does he have problems at Corinth, but he's having difficulties in the province of Asia. And he had talked about that in a moment. He had been delivered from some very difficult circumstances in Ephesus or the province of Asia. Uh, and of course we read about that in acts chapter 19 where there was this riot you remember in ephesus and they took him into the theater and they're shouting uh you know great is diana of the ephesians the latin i mean the latin name um so uh you know, he's almost, there's a mob, really, and he's almost killed there, well, he, they don't actually get a hold of him, he wants, he, he's, you remember, he talks about going in and speaking to them, and his friends say, hey, don't go in there, buddy, <laughs> they go, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, hang you up, you know, so he doesn't go in there, uh, they get some of Paul's companions, but, so that was a real traumatic experience, and maybe others, <laughs> in fact, he talks about Probably in hyperbolic form, I I fought with wild beast at Ephesus, probably describing how terrible the difficulties were he had to face there. So in verses three and four here, Paul is highlighting some of the personal, uh, some of the aspects of God's character that he had come to value in a greater way as a result of his own personal needs and God's response to those needs. And he talks about, you know, God's compassion, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And, you know, Paul is well familiar with these concepts because they're all over the Old Testament. You know, Uh, Psalm 103, as a father has compassion, the Lord has compassion on those. Lord is good, he has compassion on all he's made. Micah seven nineteen. you will again have compassion. And the Old Testament's full of this, God comfort, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And the Lord will surely comfort Zion. And Isaiah 51, I, even I am he who comforts you. Six, Isaiah 66, as a mother comforts her children, so I will comfort you. So Paul is thinking about these things, uh, these concepts, Of comfort and consolation, compassion, as he's writing to the Corinthians. I say here, Paul views his suffering, his troubles, I'm using the word suffering here, but it's the same thing, troubles, suffering, affliction, as having a personal benefit, and that they drive him to trust God alone. Indeed, we felt we had received, verse 9, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that he might that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In 12.7, he says, because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul says here... Um, That these sufferings, these afflictions had a personal benefit uh, for him. We we often ask ourselves, and I'm sure you have if you've lived long enough, you know, why has this suffering come upon me? Why has this affliction? You know, why did I fall? (laughs) You know, why have I fallen? Why did I fall and break my wrist? You know, that's the last thing I needed. That's the last thing I needed, too, was a phone call here, wasn't it? <laughs> Get that off. Um, so um, why is the Lord allowing this affliction to lay heavy upon me, this trouble, this suffering, this disease? Uh, I'm trying to understand why this is God's will for me. I know God's in control, but, you know, I just can't make sense out of it. Well, we, sometimes we can't make sense. God doesn't tell us everything. We have to trust him. But Paul tells us that at least one of the reasons that God allows us to suffer, he says here, is so that we might look to him alone. And that's a very good thing, you know. But there's a second reason God allows us to suffer. I say here, Paul's suffering also benefited those he ministered to. God comforts us so that we can comfort God comforts us so that we can comfort. So when we experience God's comfort, that is God's help, God's consolation, God's encouragement, in the midst of our own affliction, that is, if we respond properly to suffering, to affliction, to troubles, now we can respond incorrectly. We can blame God. We can become upset. We can just, you know, act sinfully. But if we respond properly as best we can, try to trust God, try to wait upon him, try to be obedient. If we if we do that uh, then we become better equipped to communicate this kind of comfort that we have received, this comfort and sympathy to others who are in, any kind of affliction or distress. So one of the reasons God's allows us to suffer and have afflictions and troubles, well, of course, this is part of God's maturing process, our sanctification. We're never gonna grow spiritually if we just, you know, <laughs> if everything's rosy all the time. Uh, we have to have some difficulties, problems to overcome. So it's going to help our own growth. It's going to cause us to trust God. And you've had this experience, I'm sure, when you come to the end of your rope and you just have to cast yourself on the Lord. But also when we do this and we come through that, then we are so much better equipped to try to help others sympathize with them, understand what they're going through, and to offer comfort and encouragement. I note here on a little technical matter that Paul uses Paul's use of the first person plural may indicate he's referring to himself and Timothy, because he says uh, here, "Who comforts us in all our troubles, so we can comfort those." Now we're going to see the first person plural a lot here, but I just want to mention here that that's this is a common thing in ancient in the ancient world uh, for people to speak in the first person plural we. Uh, I mean, the Queen of England does. She says we we" all the time. And there's other sort of literary contexts where people do that. But uh, Paul does it quite a bit. He could be referring to himself and Timothy or himself and others. But this is probably more likely a what's called a literary or epistolary epistle, uh, uh, plural, that occurs in a number of his epistles. So you see places like 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 7.5. Now these are describing exactly the same experience. Exactly. 2 Corinthians 2.13, Paul will later say, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now we talked about that, remember? Paul leaves Ephesus after he has written the severe letter and sent it with Titus. He's wondering what, what the response was. He goes to Troas and he waits in Troas. Now there was a church in Troas, as we know. Uh, Paul will visit that later in the book of Acts on his third missionary journey as he returns. He'll spend a week there. Remember that's where he spoke all night long and the guy fell out the window. And so um, he, uh, he's talking about going to Troas and waiting for Titus. I had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there in Troas. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia. When we talk about it, he goes to Macedonia. He meets Titus and writes 2 Corinthians. But he describes it again in 2 Corinthians 7, 5. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed. Conflicts on the outside. So he can talk in the singular, he can talk in the plural. I just mentioned that because later on we're going to see a lot of plurals here. And you might think, who is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about really himself, but he speaks in the plural. So I just want to mention that as we get into this uh, particular sec- first and second uh, chapters. I say notice that, that, the, that, that God's provision uh, is not necessarily for deliverance from our troubles, but encouragement in our troubles. He says... God comforts us in all our troubles so you know we can pray and we often do God remove this like Paul did Paul said remove this thorn in the flesh and we can often pray God remove this difficulty remove this family problem remove this work problem you know get me out of this and you know sometimes he does sometimes we have to go through it and he says here that what's helpful for us is that God comforts us and will comfort us in all our troubles. Remember James says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So it's not blessed is the one who doesn't experience the trial or blessed is the one who gets out of the trial, <laughs> but blessed is the one who perseveres, who endures under Trial. So, suffering then, these afflictions are a training ground for us for service to other believers. They equip us to help others, encourage others. It equips us so that we can minister to those who, for the sake of the gospel, are going through trial and hardships. And this way, we can mediate God's encouragement to others. Verse 5, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul now gives the reason, the for, why suffering equips the Christian to mediate God's comfort. Whenever Christ's sufferings were multiplied in Paul's life, God's comfort was also multiplied through the ministry of Christ. So we share in these difficulties, and we can share the comfort that God gives us. The greater the suffering, the greater the comfort, and the greater ability to share God's comfort and encouragement with others. Now, he makes a a, a statement here that could cause a little confusion. He talks about we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. What is he talking about here? It's a little difficult, but we can say clearly it doesn't refer to the atoning death of Christ. He's not saying you and I share in the suffering of Christ on the cross, that somehow we are sharing, we're atoning for sin. That's not what he's talking about. Clearly, Paul regarded the sufferings of Christ as a historical fact. They completed a am I won't bother to turn to scriptures here, but clearly it's a once and for all, as Hebrews says, sacrifice that's finished, the finished work, it's finished, and so forth. So Christians are not completing something Christ failed to finish on the the cross. Instead, these sufferings probably include all the sufferings that come upon the Christian engaged in service for Christ. So we're talking about Sufferings, afflictions that we experience as we try to serve Christ. Because we are identified with Christ. We're in Christ. We're Christians. We share in the kind of sufferings that were a part of his earthly ministry. So we're we're experiencing the kind of sufferings he suffered, and and we're, we're suffering those, hopefully for the cause of Christ, not because of our own sinfulness. Sometimes we suffer because we're just wicked sinners and we do bad things. but sometimes we suffer for the cause of Christ. So um, Paul says there in Acts nine, four and five, remember, this is on the Damascus road. This is interesting and helps illuminate what the sufferings of Christ is. Paul falls to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) Jesus is in heaven. (laughs) You know, how could he be persecuting Jesus? Well, he's persecuting the people of Jesus. He's persecuting the church, God's people. And if you're persecuting them, you're persecuting Christ. If they're suffering, Christ there's identification of Christ's suffering with the church's suffering. So like Philippians 3.10, I want to know, Paul says, Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 1 Peter 4:13 Peter says but rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. So the church when it's persecuted when you're when when they when they're suffering for the cause of Christ we're experiencing the same kind of sufferings that Jesus did. Verse 6 If we are distressed Paul says it is for your comfort and salvation the Corinthians If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So in the first part of this verse, he's restates and applies verse four. Remember verse four B said, so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Paul says, I suffer, we suffer affliction, trouble so that we can comfort others. And that's what Paul says here. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort, you know. And then the comfort we see, it helps you. It's for your comfort. It produces you patient endurance. Paul's suffering benefited the Corinthians because they equipped him to administer God's encouragement to them when they suffered and to ensure their preservation, their salvation when they underwent trial. Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that is, those who will be saved, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul's point is that the Corinthians would also come to experience an infusion of divine strength. That's what he wants. Uh, That I'm enduring this, so this will help you and help you persevere, you know, so that you can experience this eternal glory. They will come to experience the infusion of divine strength that would enable them to endure patiently the same type of trial that Paul confronted. Verse 7: And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So finally, Paul concludes this section in verse 7 by noting that his hope that the Corinthians would be triumphant in their time of trial was firmly grounded. Because God is going to guarantee the perseverance of the saints. We're going to make it to the end. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. This was so because Paul realized that to share Christ's sufferings always involved the experience of God's comfort through that suffering. If We endure suffering with the proper attitude. So to get this comfort that comes through suffering, we have to have the right attitude about it. You can become bitter. It's easy. When afflictions and troubles and difficulties come, it's easy to become bitter. You know, we may not blame God, but we're thinking about it. When we we become stronger as God comforts us, if we endure this, if we trust him, and God brings us through this, then we become stronger and enables us to benefit benefit to others. All right, so we're talking about the thanksgiving, verses three through 11. We've looked at the thanksgiving for God's comfort and suffering, verses three through seven. And now verses eight through 11. Paul says, talking about thanksgiving, he's thanking God for God's deliverance in the province of Asia. Paul is in the province of Asia. He's in Ephesus. Well, he's not now. He went on to Macedonia, but he was in Ephesus for three years, remember? So he says in verse eight, we don't want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about the troubles, there's that same word we had before, uh, troubles, afflictions, uh, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Man, this was tough going. Paul says, man, we despaired. And I think this is more I here. Again, that plural member. I don't want you to be informed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles I experienced in the province of Asia. Now, others shared in those troubles, but particularly Paul. I was under great pressure, far beyond my ability to endure, so that I despaired of life itself. Now Paul proceeds to describe the particular affliction, rendered troubles here, same as verse four, in which he received divine comfort and empowering. This affliction took place in the province of Asia. Remember, here's Asia over here, Ephesus right here, but encompasses this entire area here. Uh, it could have been in Ephesus itself, Ephesus proper, we know, which was the capital of the province, uh, or some severe persecution persecution faced by Paul and his traveling companions that uh, might have ended in death so that he could have happened, happened on his journey from Ephesus to Troas. I mean, he's writing this when he's up here, so could have been on the way here, could have been while he's in Ephesus, we just don't know what he's referring to exactly. Um, Paul had been, you know, really sort of crushed, unbearably crushed. Uh, we were under great pressure, uh, great pressure, really a crushing pressure that he just sort of renounced all hope of survival, even to the point of he, you know, he thought he wasn't going to make it. He thought he was going to die. He thought he wasn't going to live. Verse 9, Indeed, um, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, he says, this happened, this terrible experience, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So even though I might have died through this, I thought I was going to die. I thought it was over. Uh, I was trusting a God who can raise the dead. Who, If I die, this is not the end. As Paul viewed the situation at that time, he believed that he had received a destinance from which there was no escape. So this trying experience was like dying and it undermined Paul's self-confidence. It compelled his utter dependence on a God who raises the dead. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Not rely on ourselves. And as I said before, uh, maybe you've come to that point in your life sometimes where you just you know, have to say, God, I just have to trust you when we kind of give up all help, we try everything we can. Nothing seems to work. Doesn't seem to be a solution. And we finally, after we've sort of sinfully done a lot of other things, trust God. We finally just rely upon God and leave it in his hands because God can raise it dead. Verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. How about that? Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted to us in answer to the prayers of many. The he who delivered Paul from this deadly peril is the father of compassion. Back, remember, in verse three. And he will deliver us again. Paul says, Paul continues, since such perils were likely to reoccur and continuing divine intervention on Paul's behalf was necessary, he says, you know, God will continue to do this. But notice (laughs) that Paul immediately qualifies his bold assertion and he will deliver us again by adding, on him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So, you know, it, it qualifies that a little bit. Uh, he delivered us, and he will continue us. on him, we've set our hope that He will. We don't we don't we can't be positive. Even the Apostle Paul can't be positive that God will always deliver him. There is an end to this life and you're not always going to be delivered. So he qualifies it. You know we, we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, but you know we're not God, so we don't know that for sure. We can't presume, on God's gracious favor, as he says here. uh, On behalf of, for the gracious favor granted us, he says. So we can't presume on that. We can't assume that's going to happen always. We can't assume protection or deliverance from every danger and even death. God may or may not grant it. But he says here, Paul says, if God gives him future deliverance, it will come, he says, notice, in connection with the prayers of the Corinthians, as you help us by your prayers. Now, although God is the ultimate source of Paul's deliverance and our deliverance, Paul recognizes that God has chosen to use means to accomplish his purpose. And one of the means he uses to accomplish his purpose is the prayers, human means, and one of which is prayer. And Paul says, I'm depending upon your prayers in my trials and my difficulties. I need your prayers to see me through this. And we need the prayers of others. And we need to pray for others who are going through difficulties and problems. And Paul closes here notice by noting that his deliverance would prompt still further thanksgiving. He says, when I'm delivered, if I'm delivered again, then people will give thanks to God for his favor that was answered to many. And that's a good thing. You know, That's a wonderful thing. Well, I see it's 8.01. So we will stop here and we will uh, pick up next time with Roman numeral two where Paul begins a defense of his ministry against criticism that's coming pretty strongly (laughs) from Corinth. All right. Okay. We got out of that. And you're all muted. And thanks for coming tonight. And, uh,